This episode is an interview with Laura. She lost her mom just two years ago. They spent over eight weeks in more than five hospitals, and Laura is now learning how to live without her mom and best friend. Laura's mom had a fairly intense medical journey, and we discuss lots of those details in today's episode. Please feel free to listen to another episode if hearing those types of details will be triggering for you. If you have a topic that you'd enjoy hearing on the podcast, please let me know. You can find my email and other details in the show notes. And now, Laura's story. Hi, this is Beth, and welcome back to the Daughters Without Moms podcast. Today, I have Laura with me. Uh, Laura and I met online through the Instagram uh, grief community, but actually, we are not too far apart physically. We're probably, I don't know, maybe 45, 50 minutes apart. I'm north of Philadelphia. She's south East, I think you said, of Philadelphia, somewhere down there. So we're actually not that far apart physically. Um, And this is one of the things that I have loved about this grief community is getting to meet people um, who unfortunately are in the same boat as I am, but just getting to meet different people and hear their stories. So um, I'm going to turn it over to Laura. I'm going to let her tell us a little bit about herself, and then she'll share the story of her mom. And then I will come back and ask some questions at the end. So thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. Mm-hmm. So hi, everybody. Um, I'm Laura. I, like Beth said, I live outside of Philadelphia. I have two little boys. They are eight and nine. Um, and I am a speech pathologist by day. I work at a school for blind children and I absolutely love my job. Um, And I just had, last week was the two year anniversary of my mom's passing. Um, So things have been a little bit more emotional than usual, but we're, you know, we're getting through it. So um, just to kind of go back to the very beginning Probably in 2017, my mom started coughing all the time. Um, And over probably two years, it went on and off. Um, She would cough for a few months and then it would go away. And then she would cough for a few months and it would go away. And at the same time, she became severely anemic. my mom was always someone that donated blood. Um, she used to be a phlebotomist. So she, you know, she gave as much blood as she possibly could. And then all of a sudden she was so anemic that she couldn't even get out of bed. Um, and, you know, she still worked full-time. She was a full-time realtor. So, you know, she was very active usually. And for whatever reason, this anemia just kind of put her out of commission. Um, she had every test imaginable. And, uh, the doctors couldn't figure out where the blood was going. They said she lost a lot of blood somehow. Um, she had every scope she could have. She had every x-ray and all the doctors kind of had no idea what was happening. So kind of fast forward. Um, you know, we always kind of teased her cause she was coughing constantly. Um, just kind of like, you know, mom, would you just stop that? But and obviously we knew she couldn't. Um, 
And eventually in June, 2019, um, she went back one more time for a final chest X-ray and they found that she had very tiny blood clots in her lungs, um, little you know, pulmonary blood clots. They don't know where she got them. Um, she had been on a flight the week prior with her best friend. They had done this trip that they have always wanted to go on. Um, they did a, a cruise down the Rhine River um, and the doctor said, you know, maybe the blood clots formed on the plane, but my mom said she was very cognizant about making sure she got up and walked around and moved. Um, so unfortunately, we still have no idea kind of where the blood clots came from. We don't know if she had initially had clots when she was coughing and then they kind of went away and then they came back. That's kind of my, my guess as to what happened. Um, during those two years, but again, we're not quite sure. And then June, 2017, when she got the final X-ray of the pulmonary embolisms, she um, was put on a blood thinner. So she went to our local hospital, which is not, not the best hospital by any means. She just went to the local hospital for the X-ray. And when she was there, they said, you can't leave. Um, you have these PEs and you have to stay. So my mom was admitted overnight and put on this blood thinner and they monitored her overnight. And then she came home the next day. Um, so this was June, probably June 20th of 2019. She came home the next day. Um, she's very worried about taking the blood thinners. Um, my mom had never, ever been hospitalized before, except for our births. So I, it's myself and I have two, um, two older brothers. So this was the first time that she was ever in the hospital in her entire life, except for birth. Um, so, you know, she was definitely nervous about that. She was nervous about the blood thinner. Um, but everyone's, everything seemed to be going okay. Um, that day, my husband and I were taking my boys to see Toy Story 4. It was, it was like the first week and then it came out and I was on the phone with my mom we were planning a, um, she was actually bringing our entire family, all the, the grandkids and everything. She and my dad were bringing everyone to Mexico the next week on this big family vacation. Um, so I was on the phone with her planning, you know, our seats and everything. And she, I was heading into the movie theater and she said, bring me your leftover popcorn. She loved movie popcorn. So I said, of course. And I, you know, I had to rush into the theater. I said, I'll drop it off as soon as we leave. Um, we went in, we watched Toy Story. Everyone loved it. My parents live pretty close to the theater. So we just decided to drive to their house right after the movie and drop her off the leftover popcorn. Um, and I pull in the driveway and um, there were new cars, no cars at all. And I knew my dad was home with my mom because she had to kind of be monitored. Um, and I looked down at my phone and I had seven missed calls from my dad. Um, so I picked up the phone and I called him and he was pretty calm. And he said, um, your mother fell in the kitchen and hit her head. Um, the doctors thinks that it's just a weird reaction to the medicine. They think that she just got dizzy and she fell. Um, she was headed 
to another more another local hospital, but not like a big, a not a big hospital that does a lot of you know huge medical things. So he said she's getting transferred to Chester Crozier, which is a a hospital in the city or near the city. Um, so why don't you meet us there in a little bit? I'll let you know when we leave. So my husband and I drove out to Chester Crozier. We were waiting and waiting. We heard nothing. Um, all of a sudden my dad called me again, um, panicked. And he said, something happened to your mother. Um, you need to come right this minute to Delaware County hospital, which is where she was. And then he hung up the phone. Um, so at this point I'm in a total panic. It's just my husband and myself, we had dropped my boys off with a neighbor. Um, and we are flying down the highway because at this point I was, I was sure my mom had died. I didn't know what happened, but I was sure my mom had died at this point. Um, we go to the hospital. I get to the emergency room at Delaware County Hospital. Um, and my dad, he just said, it's not good. It's not good. I walked in um, and my mom had had an aneurysm rupture. Um, and they had said that that was the second rupture that day. So they didn't know she had the first rupture at home when she fell and hit her head and she was able to like kind of get up and walk through it. Um, she was still talking in the ambulance, but when she got to the Delaware County hospital, the same aneurysm re-ruptured and when it re-ruptured, um, my mom vomited everything that she had eaten that day and she aspirated um, everything that she had eaten. So she had chicken salad for lunch. Um, so she was lying down because they didn't, they didn't know it was an aneurysm. So they had her lying flat and she aspirated. And um, so if you, if you don't know what aspiration means, it means that you all of, you know, your food or your liquid goes into your lungs instead of into your stomach. Um, so a lot of people can get, you know, pneumonia that way. So at this point, um, I'm not great with medical things at all. I'm about to pass out. I'm like on the floor, um, in the emergency room, gunshot wounds are coming in and out. And I'm just, I'm like beside myself. Um, so they're transferring my mom to the bigger hospital, they're going to transfer her to Chester Crozier Hospital at this point. Um, and all I knew was she was she was very, very ill. Um, they had asked me to get all her rings off, which was um, which is really difficult for me. Um, I know that seems like a, a silly thing, but she was totally unconscious and trying to pull her jewelry off was just not something I really wanted to do, but I did. Um, so I wanted to ride with her in the ambulance. So she wasn't alone just in case at this point, my mom is, my mom is alive. Um, I just didn't want her to be alone in the ambulance. So she and I got in the car and in the ambulance and we rode from the smaller hospital to the bigger hospital. Um, and you know, they kind of whisk her away. Several hours goes by and, um, a, a neurosurgeon comes out to speak to myself and my husband and my dad were sitting in the waiting room and 
she just kind of kept repeating over and over again. Um, your mom is very, very sick. Your mom is very, very sick. Um, and at this point, she was more concerned with my mom's lungs than my mom's brain. Um, so most people, I don't know the exact statistic, but the majority of people that have aneurysms ruptured do pass away. Um, I don't know if it's 50% or more, but it's a large majority of people that have aneurysms rupture don't make it. Now at this point, my mom has had it ruptured twice and she's still alive. Um, but the doctor said her lungs were so bad from the aspiration that she probably might not make it. Um, and at this point we had to make the decision, do we go ahead with brain surgery to either clip or coil the aneurysm? Um, so you kind of, you know, we talked it over and obviously my dad was the one who made the ultimate decision. Um, my one brother lives in Los Angeles and my other brother was in Montreal on a family trip. So it was pretty much me and my dad and my husband was there for support, but we had to make this decision about, you know, do we put her through this brain surgery? Um, ultimately we decided, yes, we're gonna, we're gonna give her a shot. Um, so my mom that night, they put a filter in to stop any possible blood clots um, from, you know, moving maybe up her leg and she had a craniectomy. So a craniectomy is um, where they take a large portion of your skull off. So um, after she had the brain surgery, her brain would swell. And if you don't have the skull, it gives the brain a, a place to go. So my mom had a craniectomy and she had a bronchoscopy, which is when they go in, pretty much go in your lungs and they kind of vacuum them out. So um, at this point, it's the middle of the night. Um, I don't know, left from right at this point. Um, nobody is in this hospital except for us. Um, and eventually they come out and they say, you know, your mom's out of surgery. Um, she made it through. And we were, we were all, you know, really surprised. Um, and we were allowed to go see her. This was, you know, a little bit before COVID hit about six months, I guess, maybe, or I'm not sure. Um, we were allowed to go see her and um, the doctor had said, we can't, we can't wake her right now. If, if she hadn't aspirated, we would have woken her to see what her cognitive function would be. But because she aspirated so badly um, that she has to be in a medically induced coma and we can't wake her. So um, my dad and I went back to see her and it was, it was a little jarring um, to see her like that. Um, you know, they had shaved her head. She had stitches from the middle of her forehead kind of all the way back behind her ear. Um, and because she didn't have her whole skull, there was a, a really big, you know, dent in her head. She just looked, she looked different than my mom. You know, my mom was always very put together. She always had, you know, her, her gold hoops on and her lip gloss. And my mom looked sick at this point, very, very sick. Um, and just to see her head shaven and, and it was a lot. Um, so after that happened, um, 
I went home and I came back and the doctors had said, you know, her lungs are, her lungs are really, really, really bad. Um, she has pneumonia. They thought she had, um, ARDS, which is like a respiratory acute respiratory distress syndrome. I, I believe I'm not sure. Um, and about only 50% of the people that have that make it. So she had a lot working against her at this point between her head, um, you know, and her lungs. And again, we didn't know how badly the aneurysms, the aneurysm um, impacted her cognitive function at this point. So um, because she's so bad at this point, the doctors say, you know, we have to innovate her. Um, so innovation is kind of when they put the tube down your throat to help you breathe. So she was innovated for a little while. And then um, again, she's still in a medically induced coma at this point. The doctors said, you, you know, you can only be intubated for a certain amount of days before they have to um, put a trach in because it, it gives you way too much damage to your vocal folds. So um, we had to make the decision, you know, do we, do we go ahead with a trach? Um, and they were gonna do a trach and a feeding tube at the same time. Um, at this point, my brothers had come home from, you know, where they, where they were. So it was a little bit easier to, to make some decisions as a whole family. Um, but my mom was, was very, very adamant my whole life, um, that she did not want to be kept alive by machines. Um, and she had a, a living, her living will and her, um, all of her paperwork, but stated that in the end stage of life, I don't want this, this, and this, but because we didn't know what her cognitive function was, we couldn't, we didn't know if this was end stage of life or not. Um, so if my mom had no cognitive function, she wouldn't have wanted to be traked with a feeding tube. But the doctor said, you know, there's a very, very small chance that your mom could wake up and, you know, and get rehab and and see how things were after that. Um, so that was a really that was a really hard decision um, to make because my mom was very very adamant that she wanted, you know, no extreme medical intervention. But because we didn't know how things were going to be, we couldn't really not give her that chance. So my mom she was traked and vented. And um, she had a feeding tube placed. Um, and again, that was, it was really hard, really hard to see your, you know, somebody on a trach in a vent. And, you know, my heart, my heart goes out to everybody right now that's dealing with that with their family members with COVID. Um, it's not easy. It's definitely, it's not easy. Um, so, you know, a couple of days goes by and she's, her lungs are not getting any better. They're getting worse and they're getting worse. Um, so they said, you know, we kind of have a last ditch option to put her in a prone bed, which um, puts her on her belly. And when your lungs are damaged, if you are on your belly, 
it takes um, the pressure kind of off of your lungs because of gravity. So my mom went in this special prone bed and it looked like um, almost like a little spaceship. They kind of like put her in this tube on her belly and then um, the prone bed would rock back and forth, kind of like um, a boat all day long. Um, she was in this prone bed almost the entire day. And then every day they would attempt to flip her and um, put her supine, put her on her back and see if she was able to be breathing kind of like any better on her own. Um, so we did this probably for maybe a week um, where she was in, in prone for like 22 hours a day. And then they would try to flip her for an hour. Um, in the beginning, she couldn't even be flipped for five, 10 minutes. Her body just couldn't handle it. It was just too much. Um, and we kind of all braced ourselves like, okay, this is it. You know, mom's lungs aren't, aren't healing at all. Um, and again, we still don't know what her cognitive function is at this point. So every day they had her in prone and every day they'd flip her and they'd try to keep her in supine for a little bit longer every single day. Um, and like I said, it wasn't looking good. And then one day out of the blue, they flipped her and her number stayed good. And then they kept her and then they stayed even better. And she was able to stay in supine for about like 12 hours, just clearly out of the blue. Um, and the doctors realized that they maybe um, misdiagnosed her and she did not have the, the ARDS. Um, so they just kind of changed her treatment a little bit. And over time, um, she was able to get out of this prone bed, which was fantastic. Um, the prone bed itself was also very, it was very hard to see her in because, um, you know, having your face down all day for 22 hours a day, it kind of changes and distorts your face a little bit. So, you know, seeing my mom not look like my mom was also, you know, hard as she's hooked up to every machine in the world. Um, so time goes by and a couple more, maybe another week or so goes by and they realize that she isn't quite sick enough to be in the neuro ICU anymore at the hospital. So um, she was still pretty ill, but not ill enough to be in the ICU. So at this point she's uh, transferred to an LTEC, like a long-term care facility, um, which is a little bit closer to my house, which was nice, but she's still asleep at this point or she's still in a coma at this point. Um, the doctors had said that they were going to take her off of that medication, um, whatever it is that kind of kept her, um, when she was in pro med, she was fully paralyzed. She wasn't just in a medically induced coma. She had to be paralyzed. And they said that medication took a long time to wear off. So she went to the LTEC. Um, we fought pretty hard to get her her own room, which was good because up until this point, one of my family members was with my mom. 24 hours a day. Um, that was a, that was a huge blessing, um, that we were able, we were able to do that. So my dad usually took the night shift. He would sleep all day and he'd come, you know, from 10 PM to 6 AM. And then my brother would come and it was, um, one tiny blessing out of this is this happened 
two days after my school year ended. Um, and since I work in, in a school, I'm off all summer. So I was able to be with my mom every single day during this process, whether she knew I was there or not. Um, so now my mom's in this Altec and she's still trached. She's seeing a respiratory therapist every day, but her vent settings are getting less and less, which was great. She, um, her lungs were continuing to heal much against what all the doctors thought her lungs were healing like miraculously, um, which was fantastic. Um, but she was still sleeping, you know, all day, every day. Um, there came a day where she started to kind of wake up a little bit. You could see her eyes start to flutter. Um, you know, they, maybe she tried to open her eyes for very brief periods of time during this. And, you know, I would talk to her, I talked to her the whole time, you know, like she was there and, um, I would hold her hand and rubber and rubber hands and, you know, let her know I was there. And then she would go back to sleep for 24 more hours. And then the next night it seemed, you know, like just little by little, her eyes were opening a little bit more. Um, it seemed like this, the paralytic, um, were, was wearing off her body and, you know, the medically induced coma apart, um, as well as, you know, her own brain, brain injury was not wearing off. Now brain injury wasn't wearing off, but she was starting to heal a little bit. Um, and there was just one night where her eyes were open and I was just talking to her and I said to her, I said, mom, I said, I have to leave you right now. Um, I have to go home and, and feed the boys but I'll be back tomorrow. And, um, and she nodded her head very, very slightly. And I said, mom, did you hear me? And she nodded again. And, um, and I said, I said, and you understood what I said? And she nodded her head. Um, and that was my, that was one of my huge worries being a speech therapist. Um, you know, I've worked in neuro units and things like that. And just, I was, I was really concerned about her cognition. Um, you know, would, would she know where she was? Would she know who I was? Would she, would she be able to speak? Um, so she only for a few days, my mom only had the ability to nod. Um, she would nod a little bit here and there. Um, you know, she was able to say she would nod if something was painful or she was able to kind of let us know how her body was feeling. Um, I don't think at this point she really had any idea what had happened to her. Um, but I think she knew she was in the hospital at this point. Um, and then kind of from there, every day she was awake for longer bits of time. Um, I was trying to get her on, you know, a, a better schedule. When I came in at eight o'clock in the morning, I would open the curtains up and let the light in. So she would know it was morning to try and get her, her body a little bit more used to being awake during waking hours and sleeping during sleeping hours. Um, but she was only awake for maybe 20 minutes at a time. Um, you know, on Sundays we would come with our iPad and we would put church on for her on the iPad. Um, and, and she loved that. She, you could see that she was starting to show facial expressions. Um, she would start to tap, you know, with her finger to, to some of the contemporary music. 
Um, but the brain injury made a huge impact on her body. She had um, very limited use of the left side of her, the left side of her body at this point. Um, she wasn't able to like wiggle her toes or move her fingers or anything like that. Um, her face was fairly symmetrical um, and she had limited use of her right side. So even though the right side worked, it was very weak. Um, so over time, um, this is a, probably another few weeks, my mom continued to get better and better. And then um, she started to receive speech therapy at her, at her, um, the place where she was. And she was able to mouth words. Um, so she wasn't able to vocalize yet, but she was able to say words when they would say, who was your daughter? She could mouth my name. Um, she knew, she knew who my siblings were. She knew who my dad was. She knew, um, a lot of things about like who the president was and that sort of thing. Um, but she still wasn't using her voice yet. Um, so she had, she was trached at this point and they had, um, to use your voice, you have to put a cap on the trach and you have to have enough air to push it out, to, to bypass the trach and get the sound out of your mouth, if that makes sense. But she just wasn't quite strong enough yet, but they kept working at it, kept working at it. Um, at this point she weaned off the vent, which was fantastic. And they were thinking of taking her, her trach out very soon. Um, she went to, at this point, they said, you're not, you're not sick enough to be here anymore. So we have to see if there's rehab options for you. Um, at this point, my mom, she still can't really move her body on her own at all, except, you know, she could scratch her face. She could squeeze, squeeze a stress ball, that sort of thing in her right hand, but you know, she can't sit up on her own. She can't walk on her own. She can't move any part of her body on her own. Um, so we were a little nervous about, you know, transferring her, but we were hoping with all of the increased therapy time that, you know, she would, she would thrive with that. Um, because while she was at the LTAC, she was moved very, a very small amount of time throughout the day. They did the very best they could, um, you know, so she didn't get bed sores, but they were very low staffed and they were super crowded. And, you know, I tried my best to, I did her OT things with her when I could and her PT things with her when I could, but if it was just me and her in the room, I didn't have the strength, you know, to lift my mom, to put her in a chair, to kind of change her body position. So, you know, she was in that bed almost all day, every day. Um, and like I said, even if they came in to do PT, she was in a, she just got moved from the bed to the chair. She still wasn't actively moving any part of her body. Um, and this, this all comes into this story <laughs> a little bit later as well. Um, so they did their very best. The place was, the place was wonderful. And, um, I can't thank them enough for the care that they gave my mom during that time that she was in the LTEC, um, the day, a day or two before she left the LTEC, she was approved to eat by mouth and she was so excited. 
Um, she had a swallow study and the speech pathologist said that her swallow was pristine, which is um, very my mom. My mom is super type A. There's not a, you know, never a piece of dust in the house. The house is immaculate. Everything about my mom was always perfect. And uh, even though she wasn't really using her voice, she said, I heard someone said that my swallow was pristine. Um, and at this point I was kind of reading her lips and she was super excited that she was cleared to swallow. So she had her first meal, she had a grilled cheese and a tomato soup. After this, this was probably seven weeks after the initial aneurysm rupture. Um, so she's transferred this point to Bryn Mawr Rehab and she gets there and it's absolutely wonderful there. If you've never been or you need somebody to be in rehab in the Philadelphia area, it is fantastic there. Um, but she got there and the next day she kind of said um, that her stomach hurt and it's difficult. It was difficult because of her brain injury um, sometimes to know what was real and what was what was fake. So even though she asked me, you know, did my Talbot's credit card get paid? There were times where she was also hallucinating and seeing um, things in her room that didn't exist. And that, that's very common with brain injuries. Um, you know, my favorite thing that she saw, she kept talking about this ugly purple bird that lived on the edge of her bed. Um, and there was no convincing my mom that there was no ugly purple bird in her hospital room. Um, so that's just a story that always makes me laugh because as, as with it, as my mom was, and, you know, she still, she still was really on the ball with things. There were times that, that, you knew, like, yep, that's the brain injury. Yep. That's the brain injury. Um, so when you would ask her, you know, how much pain is it to be able to, to gauge you know, is she really a nine out of 10? Is it really a two out of 10? Or are you feeling more pain? Um, we didn't really know. And we couldn't, unfortunately, couldn't necessarily trust. If she said it's not a lot of pain, we couldn't trust it. Um, you know, and if she said she had a headache, we have to get her a scan immediately because we didn't want another aneurysm. So even if she would just be like, oh, I have a tiny headache. Well, I don't know how tiny that headache is so now we have to go through this whole thing but anyway so she said her stomach hurts so we took her to the hospital we took her to paoli hospital so at this point i think she's in her one two three four i think five fifth hospital in two months um i believe fifth or sixth hospital from the very very beginning when she they found the pe's in her lungs um we take her to paoli hospital and they did a bunch of scans and they said that um, unfortunately my mom had developed a large, large amount of blood clots in her legs, um, a ton of blood clots in her legs. And this was causing all of the pain in her belly. And because she had that filter, um, I guess they kind of put it in your, in your thigh. I'm not quite sure, but um, the filter was just filling up with blood clots. Um, and they had said, unfortunately, we're going to have to put your mom back on a blood thinner. Um, so initially when I, my mom's aneurysm first ruptured and the brain surgeon came out to speak to me, I said, did this aneurysm rupture because of the blood thinner? And she said, it didn't. 
Now, obviously I don't have a degree in, in brain surgery. I'm not a neurologist or any of that, but it just seemed a little too ironic. You know, I don't, I don't know where it's ironic to me, but, um, that my mom went on a blood thinner the day before. And the next day she had an aneurysm rupture twice. Um, so when we were fast forward again, when we went to Paoli hospital, um, and they said, we have to put her back on a blood thinner, um, all of our heart just dropped. Um, and we kind of had to figure out what we were going to say to her. Um, we didn't want to, we didn't want to ever frighten her. Um, but she had no idea kind of how, how sick and limited she was. Um, like she was super surprised that a part of her brain, a part of her skull was off. Um, you know, she was surprised when they said you can't shower by yourself, like just the brain injury kind of limited her in terms of, um, what she understood about at this point, is it her disability. And we also weren't sure how much she knew how severe this was, how, how big of a deal all of this was. Um, and we knew that there was a possibility if she went on this blood thinner, that something absolutely horrible could happen again. Um, but they said it was kind of like a, we cut off her legs or we try this blood thinner. So we had to put her on a blood thinner again. Um, and she was shipped back to Bryn Mawr rehab to try this process again, to begin, you know, all day, every day therapy. Um, and we were, we were really excited. Um, so I guess this was August 21st, August 21st. I, had gone to Bryn Mawr to visit my mom and in the hospital, in the rehab hospital, um, you know, they had kind of given her, they had given her a shower. They got her all ready for the day, for, for the night. Um, I just sat with her for a while and we, we chatted about as much as, as much as she was able to chat with. It was usually me talking at her and her kind of nodding. Um, but, you know, before I left, I was able every time I left her, just because I didn't know what was coming the next day. Um, you know, I said, I love you. We did. We always said like, I love you more than all the stars in the sky, all the fish in the sea, the sand on the beach. And then my mom said it too. And then, um, I said, that was August 21st. And I went home and my dad was there that night till 6am. Um, and then my brother, my brother stopped by the rehab real briefly before he, he had it to work on August 22nd. Um, and he called me at about, uh, maybe eight o'clock. I'm not sure. And he said, um, I got to the hospital and there was a lot of doctors in mom's room. Mom had just vomited. Um, I don't know what's happening. So they rushed my mom to Paoli hospital again. And, um, at this point we all, we just had a bad feeling that, that because she vomited, um, that's what she did last time the aneurysm ruptured. Um, she also had a seizure when the aneurysm ruptured the first time. Um, and, and this time as well. So we got to the hospital and, um, the doctor came out 
the brain surgeon came and talked to us. And um, I'll never forget the words he used. He said, um, you know, this is a catastrophic, inoperable brain bleed. Um, and he showed us the scan. And, you know, because she was put back on that blood thinner, she had another, another enormous brain bleed um, that they couldn't, they couldn't fix. Um, and it was hard because at this point, my mom's, my mom's still alive. Um, they had said because she had the craniectomy and she had, her brain had room to swell that she was able to have the time to get to the hospital. They said if she did not have the craniectomy, she would have died immediately. Um, so at this point, it's my brothers and my mom and my dad, and we're, you know, kind of surrounding her bed. Um, she's still moving. Um, you know, her feet were moving. They said it was, they, at this point, they said it was like a reflex um, that her feet were moving. Um, so we knew it was kind of only a matter of time, but it was hard because we had so much hope because she had gone through so much over eight weeks and we, we finally got her to rehab, which is, you know, what we wanted to, you know, she, she woke up, which we never thought she'd wake up. She spoke. We never thought she'd spoke. She ate. We never thought she'd eat. You know, she got off the trach. Like she was just hitting all of these milestones that no one ever thought she would. Um, and, and now it's happening all over again. And we know that this time it's not, it's not going to be, we're not going to have a chance. So, um, you know, we, uh, we all sat around my mom, we held her hand and, you know, stroked her face and we prayed with my mom. Um, you know, we, she loves the song, um, it is well with my soul. So we played that for her. She also loves, uh, John Denver. So we played her some, uh, take me home country roads, <laughs> which now I can't listen to ever again, but, <laughs> Um, and I mean, to be honest, it was, they, um, it was, it was peaceful. Um, you know, it was the first time I had obviously been with someone when they died. Um, and it was, it was as peaceful as it could have been, you know, they kind of, they prepared us. It was, it was coming and we had asked them if they could just turn off you know, turn off the beeps and turn off the machines so we could just kind of be in silence with my mom. Um, and so then my mom, you know, she, she passed away um, on August 22nd, 2019, um, around like 10.30 in the morning. Um, and then we had to, you know, make all the phone calls and, and do everything we needed to do. Uh, the, the hardest part, the hardest part for me, I think, was that we had so much hope. We were given so much hope that she was going to be okay, you know, to the point where we were, we were making um, arrangements to how we could um, take my parents' house and kind of make them like a, a wheelchair accessible in-laws quarters. And then my family was going to move in to my parents' house to, 
to help and so I could be a caregiver for my mom. Um, but, you know, kind of looking back, my mom would have never, ever, ever wanted anybody to, to care for her, like in, with the amount of care that she was gonna need at that point. So not that, not that it's a blessing at all, you know, I, I hate when people <laughs> to say that to me, but I am grateful that my mom didn't have to live with these major, major health concerns for the rest of her life. She would have, she would have hated it. You know, she would have done it gracefully because that's how, who she was. But I know that she would have really, really struggled with anyone having to take care for, take care of her in any way. Um, she was extremely independent. Um, so just a little, you know, history, I guess, about my relationship with my mom, which is um, kind of why I'm, oh, I listened to this podcast. Um, my mom was, she was my best friend in the whole world. Um, my husband would always joke, you know, like that he was, he, he was nothing compared to my mom because she was my everything. Um, my mom had had me a little bit later in life. Um, so my brothers were a lot older than me. Um, I was in second grade when my brothers went off to college. So my mom, it was pretty much just my mom and me growing up. My dad, he was a business guy, so he traveled all the time. Um, so it was always my mom and me. And she didn't work until I went, until I started, you know, full-time school. And she was just there for me always. And uh, even as an adult, we moved we moved about 10 minutes, five minutes from my parents' house. And my parents, you know, my mom was always over the house. She was always watching my boys when she could. Um, she's a she's a huge, huge part of, of our lives. And uh, it was it was hard because I felt like I lost not just my mom, but I lost my best friend too. Um, you know, I called her every single day. I got out of work at 3.15 and I, I called my mom every day. We talked two or three times a day. Um, uh, sorry. <laughs> um, but it was, it was, it's hard. It's hard to not, to not have her as my mom or have her as my best friend. Um, and it's hard to now, like, I have a husband and I have sons and I have brothers, but there's no other females. Um, my one brother's married and his wife is wonderful. Um, but you know, I lost, I lost that person. I lost that, that female figure in my family. Um, and it's hard, you know, my brothers, my brothers are wonderful and I'm sure they'll listen to this eventually. So I have to be kind, but you know, it's just, it's different. It's different. Um, it's it's been it's been a challenge. My grief is still very raw. Um, I would definitely say it's better than it was a year ago, which is progress. Um, you know, it's never it's never going to go away, and that's something that I've learned. I'm gonna I have to kind of learn to live with it. And, live through it and live around it. It's always there. It's never, it's never not going to be there. Um, 
but it's still it's still really difficult for me. There's definitely days where I want to pick up the phone and I want to call her and tell her something. Um, my my boys are still um, they're still having a hard time with it. They were very close to their Mimi, and my older son is very sensitive, and uh, you know sometimes he'll wake up crying at night because he misses her so much. Um, and it's at, at those points my husband has to go in and talk to him because I can't. I just can't bring myself to do it some days because um, I know I will just, I will not be the supportive person that my, my son needs at that time. So my husband usually does that for me, which is wonderful. Um, it's just, it's been, it's this whole experience is something that I would never wish on my worst enemy. Um, it's absolutely horrible. Um, it took me a long time to kind of, the doctor said it was PTSD that because I was there for my mom's death and I was there through all of these horrible traumatic um, medical things that she went through that he said I was experiencing PTSD. Um, I couldn't, I couldn't unsee it. I couldn't unhear it. Um, I couldn't unsmell it. Like it just, it, it just kind of took over my whole body. Um, I couldn't sleep at night because it was everywhere. You know, whenever there was any silence, those visions and those sounds and, you know, the words from the doctors, everything, it just comes rushing back. Um, and I still have those days, but, you know, it's, it's a little bit better. Um, people always said in the beginning, like, it's going to be really hard that you were with your mom when she, when she died. But over time, you'll see that it was a blessing that you were there. Um, and I guess little by little, I am starting to see that. And especially because so many, um, you know, so many people with COVID can't be with their loved ones right now. I do feel like I was very lucky that I had that opportunity to, to be with my mom at the end. Um, and I was very lucky to see her care through everything. Um, and just the timing of it, like I said, she had the first rupture two days before, two days after school ended, and she passed away two days before my school year began. So the entire summer was spent in the hospital, but I wouldn't have had it any other way. Um, I was, I was so lucky to get that time with my mom, whether she heard me or not. Um, I know she did at the end because we talked, um, but I'm just, I'm so lucky that I was able to to be with her um, during those last eight weeks. So as horrible, as horrible as every single second was in those hospitals, you know, I wouldn't have traded it to not be there with her. Um, so yeah, here I am in my grief. <laughs> Two years later, it's still, it's hard. It's really hard. Mm -hmm. I just felt like Beth, I know your mom passed when you were really young. Mm -hmm. um, and I like to consider, think that I'm still young, you know, um, I'm not as, I'm clearly not as young as you were, but I guess I imagined that I would be 60, you know, like I thought my mom would be this old lady when yeah. she died, Yeah. you know, and mm -hmm. not, not someone that was still thriving and working. And, um, I always had that if only I had 10 more years. And I kept telling myself, maybe if I had 10 more years, I'd be, I wouldn't be so sad. 
or maybe if I had, you know, if I had five more years, maybe I'd be less sad, but mm -hmm. I'm sure I'd be this sad at any, at any point <laughs> that your mom passes away when you guys have that kind of relationship. I was going to say, if she was your best friend and your person, another 10 years would have, you know, would have um, made those bonds even stronger. You know, um, I don't think that there's any, yeah. I don't think that there's, you know, would have been any time that would have made it less hard for you based on how it sounds like your relationship was. Yeah. Yeah. Which is amazing. Amazing. She, she yeah. was, she was the best mom in the world. I like, I know everybody says their mom's the best, but my mom was. No, they don't. My kids don't say that. <laughs> my mom was fantastic. You know, she was the glue to this family. She was, she was kind. She was so kind. She had so many friends. Mm -hmm. just the people that came to her funeral and the things that they said about her and stories that I heard, like things that she did that she never told anyone she did, you know, like giving money to people who needed it. And she would, she was just, she was so kind, so kind. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, and humble. It sounds like she was extremely humble. Yeah. Yeah. That's she a, was kind, loving, humble. She was everything that like she was everything a mother should be. Yeah. Wow. Well, it sounds like you're lucky. I'm very lucky. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very lucky. Mm -hmm. I just hope I can, you know, be half that mom to my boys. Oh, I'm sure you are. The one thing I was gonna say when you wrote when um you said that your son is having a difficult time and um with missing Mimi is that like grandparents' day is coming up. I think it's next weekend. Okay. Right? Yeah, this weekend is Labor Day weekend, and then next weekend is parent is Grandparents Day next Sunday. Okay. So things like that, or you know, um, when people talk about getting over grief and things like that, I you know, I don't think you ever do. And you said the same thing. I think you know that you feel the same way. But there's because there's always things that will always. make it make that mom sized hole just you know glaringly yep. obvious in your life. So absolutely. You know, um, I, I interviewed a woman a couple uh, weeks ago and she lost her mom and her husband within two years of each other. And she labels the anniversaries as heaven's day, which I thought was just okay, because she's like, we're not, we're mourning that they're gone, but we're also celebrating, you know, the lives that they had. And I thought that was just such a beautiful name. Um, so, you know, I don't know, with Grandparents Day coming up, just wanted you to think about that. And yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, because yeah, I know sometimes at school they have, you know, can the grandparents come in and yeah. that sort of thing. And last year, because of COVID, nobody was at school. And the year before she had just passed away. And I think I probably ignored it. <laughs> I uh -huh. was, you know, I don't even know if I had gotten out of bed by Grandparents Day at that point. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, Yeah. Um, and it's, it's crazy that you mentioned PTSD because that's, that's what I wrote right here, PTSD <laughs> of the blood thinner. But I think when there is a history like that, now granted, I mean, um, eight, eight weeks might not seem long to some people's journeys, but that still is a long right. time when you have that, that history and that thing that, you know, you positive, I mean, it sounds like it was a positive correlation of, of what happened with that blood thinner. Um, I can imagine that that PTSD is just, is just very, very real. Um, and then on top of that, a pandemic, we've, we are living in a constant environment of PTSD, this drip, drip, drip of anxiety and, and think uncertainty and, 
the things that have been going, especially if you have young kids in the school system, it's a lot to navigate. So you had, you know, all of that. And then into a pandemic is very, you know, that's a lot to handle. It was. Yeah. Yeah, it sure is. Um, So one thing I want to ask about you, you said that your brothers didn't, weren't local, but then it seems like they were there for a lot of the process. So my one brother lived in California. He came home for the whole summer. So he is, um, Mm. he's a casting director in Hollywood and he was able to do his work from home that summer. And then my other brother, he was local, but he was in Montreal for a trip. So he had come home. Okay. Okay. Wow. That's, um, it was one, it was, it was really, really good to have them there. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, in our bond, even though, you know, they're 10 years older, eight years older, I feel like our bond has strengthened so much since all of this has happened. You know, a, a joint terrible experience will do that to you. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, I imagine that they're very protective of you. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, um, my sister went through a very similar journey, brain, two brain surgeries, the lungs, her cancer spread to her brain and her lungs. And a lot of things you said I could um, relate to. But the one thing that I think might be hard for some people to understand, but like we, she was in ICU for three weeks and us too, she was never alone. Somebody was there 24 hours a day. And as weird as it sounds, those were like sacred times. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, um, absolutely. We look back on that, and 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 I kind of think you know the hospital might have thought the same thing about your family, but they're like, "Geez, these people are like you know <laughs> intense and are here I'm all sure the time." They did, and they said we could only you know have two people in ICU. Well, we had eight people sleeping on the floor of the ICU waiting room. Like it was just, yeah. it was you know, but that's kind of how she had you know done her journey for she was almost 10 years of battling cancer. Um, but it's just, you know, in the thick of it, I don't think you think of it as meaningful time. Like, you know, you would never be anywhere else. If you could, you would be there with them. Um, so it's not like it was, uh, you know, but for me looking back on that, like those are some of the most sacred times that I spent with my sister. Absolutely. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Which is kind of bizarre. Cause I'm the same as you, like, I would go to her with a lot of her appointments and stuff. And even when they would, they had to take her blood every time I would stand on the other side of the little curtain because I yeah. am the same way they'd have to access her port. And I would turn around and look at the wall. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to be on the floor. Don't yeah. say that stuff out loud. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, yeah, but it's, it's amazing. The strength that you can find when it's uh, for someone that you love. Yeah, it definitely. Um, I'm a lot better. I think I'm definitely better now with medical stuff because I've seen it all, you know, there's, I've seen up till the end and there really hasn't been much that I haven't seen. So, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. my friends will say like, don't watch this episode of Grey's Anatomy, Laura, you know, somebody's mom dies. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, that's somebody else's mom. My mom already died. Like that's already the worst thing that could have happened to me. I, you know, whether mm-hmm. I'm a jaded or numb, I'm not mm-hmm. sure which one it is, mm-hmm. but like, to me, you know, I, mean, I have my husband and my children, but like, to me, my mom dying was, that was the worst. That was the worst thing, yeah. you know, apart from me, I told you my husband, but it yeah. doesn't get much worse than that mm-hmm. to me. Yeah. So can I just clarify, did she regain her ability to speak at Bryn Mawr? Yes, she did. She was okay. very quiet. 
Okay. She could speak. Okay. Wow. Well, that's really, that's really amazing. Yeah. And um, I love the um, ugly purple bit bird. Yes. <laughs> the purple the bird. ugly purple bird. It, it gives me something, you know, to laugh about because she, she was adamant because I could see her eyes going around the room, like back and forth, back and forth. And I was like, what is that? And she's like the purple bird. It lived on the edge of her bed, but it would fly around sometimes in the room. Uh-huh. And um it just, uh, you know, puts a little yeah. humor in the situation. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Brain injuries are terrible, but if you can laugh about something, you have to find those moments. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great memory for you to be able to have. Um and so yeah, you're only two years in. And then on top of that, a pandemic and everything else that's been going on, you know, you said your grief is raw. I I say like my mom is a wound is a scar for me now because it was 38 years ago, you know, um, this year was actually the year that she's been dead as many years as she was alive because she was 38 when she passed. So that's a, that's a scar for me. You know, I've had enough time to deal with it and process it, but my sister is less than two years. My dad was 2018. And so they're both, I say, they're both still wounds and it's way too, it's just way too open, um, you know, um, to really, not to talk about it, but it's just, it's just, there is a different level of, of, um, the pain and the rawness, like you said. Yes. I yeah. still can't look like some people, you know, they post pictures of their moms all over their Instagram. I can't, I can't yeah. even like, I can't even look at her picture yet. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. I'm, get, um, I'm getting there little by little, but you know, yeah. I'm, I'm sobbing. If I see her picture, it's not like a, it doesn't bring me joy yet. It just mm-hmm. makes me sad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, sounds like she was your person and probably you were hers as well. You know, if your other older brothers were out of the house and your dad was traveling all the time. Um, yeah. yeah. Sounds like a really symbiotic, symbiotic relationship that is a give and take for both of you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you sharing your story with us and I'm sorry that I know that it's hard. Yes. I know that it's hard, um, because you went through, great lengths of care and, you know, that you were seeing that hope. And so I'm sorry that that um, hope was, was not realized uh, for you. Yeah. That's hard. You know, like I said, she didn't have to, she didn't have to live the rest of her life, you know, in a wheelchair or needing Mm -hmm. full support. Mm -hmm. So she would never wanted that. Right. Yeah. And just to anybody listening, Laura is the only one that can say that (laughs) nobody else can say that nobody else has the right to, you know, put any of those platitudes on her about, well, you know, she's at a better place or she wouldn't want to live that way. Laura is the only one and her brothers and her dad. (laughs) She's the only one who's allowed to say that. So don't listen to this and think that that's, you know, going to be your next line for reaching out to Laura. Cause that's, no, yeah. Don't say that. Cause yeah. Yeah. If anyone else said that to me, I would have been furious, (laughs) but it ticked you off. Yeah. Yeah. So especially uh in the beginning that it was too much. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I might, I'm finally at that point realizing like, uh, you know, she would have been unhappy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. But that's just your, you're the only one that's allowed to say that. So, um, so I normally end each podcast with a, a, either a piece of advice or just something that you would want to share to other, um, daughters without moms and my farmer friend guy who's listening to the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think something that was, was helpful to me is I was very proactive with my grief. 
Um, I knew how I felt. I knew I felt terribly. And I knew, like, I knew I was at rock bottom and I knew I cannot stay like this. I have, you know, I have two little boys that depend on me and a husband and a job and I have to make active steps to improve. I don't know if it's to get, to get better. Um, but I needed to learn how to, to better handle my grief because it, it wasn't going to be laying in bed every day. Mm-hmm. Um, so I felt like I, I felt that being proactive, um, I joined a grief group of about a week after my mom passed away. I started, um, grief share at a local church. Yep. Um, I started reading books about grief. I started, you know, following every single person on Instagram that was going, going through similar things. Um, and I felt like just being as proactive as possible really, really helped me get through that first six months, you know, or however long it is, um, or however long it was where I was, I was in the pits, you know, I was deep in the pits of grief and just learning about grief and learning that, that I was normal and that there are other people doing this. And by reaching out to people, you know, similar to like people like Beth that have gone through this and, you know, you're not, you're not sitting in your bed right now crying, you know, there Mm -hmm. is, there's hope that Mm -hmm. you will improve. And that's what I needed. That's what I needed for myself. I needed to proactively make, um, make changes and learn how to be better with my grief. Um, and seeing people who came out, you know, quote unquote on the other side and who are functioning was very helpful for me. Well, good for you. Good for you. Because I do think that that's a lot of the, the part of the, the healing journey. Like you said, it doesn't ever go away, but, you know, being able to name it and say it and voice it and acknowledge it instead of, you know, the stuffing it down or the Mm -hmm. bottling it up, eventually sometime it's going to come out. And and if you do it, bottle it up for too long, it'll really be with a vengeance. So good for you. I spoke to anyone and any, everyone that wanted to hear or didn't want to hear about my grief, which is so not like me. I'm a very, very private person. I always have been. My family's very private, but for some reason, when it came to this, it was all out on the table. Mm -hmm. I shared with anyone who wanted to hear how sad I was, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. what book I was reading. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, good for you. And I I can imagine that that's going to be a real good example for your sons to know that, you know, um, that it's okay to be sad and it's okay to then, you know, also be happy. And a lot of times some of those moments might bring grief and joy both at the same time, because, you know, it'll trigger a memory of your mom, which will make you miss her. But the other, you know, the other hand of that is the joy of the memory, you know? Yeah. Yeah. My boys. Um, one thing we did together was, I guess when it, January, 2020, the first day of January, 2020, um, I had put my running shoes on. So I'm a runner, but I had not been running for months. Cause I was just too sad. I couldn't, I couldn't move. And, um, you know, January 1st, 2020, I put my sneakers on and I said, you know what, I'm going to run one for my health to get myself out there. And I'm going to, but I'm going to do it for a purpose. So I had chosen, um, the brain aneurysm foundation, so every mile I ran, I was going to donate, you know, a dollar for every 
um, mile that I ran. And then I put it out there to like my friends and family to see if they could match donations or that sort of thing. And um, my goal was to run a thousand miles in the year of 2020. Um, and I called it a thousand miles for mama. And mm. um, I was able to hit milestones, like certain milestones, like the day that she died, I hit 750 miles, you know, and then I was a little ahead of schedule because of COVID. I had a lot of extra time. So I was able to wrap things up on, on her birthday, which is November 9th. So I finished my, my thousand miles on her birthday down the shore, which was her favorite place with my boys. My, my whole family ran, you know, the end, the end miles with me to kind of have this big culmination of the year. Um, so they were a part of that, which, which was really special to me. They knew why I was doing it. They knew why I was getting up and leaving and running and, mm-hmm. and, and spending all this time outside of the house. Um, mm-hmm. So that was, that was special to me that they were able to join me in that. It was healing for me. Um, it was healing for me to feel like I was doing, I was, you know, giving back to other people that have to go through these horrible brain aneurys- brain brain aneurysms. And it was helpful to me to have my family there yeah. to, to be supportive and to, to know why I was doing what I was doing. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's awesome. I know that they'll never forget that. And good for you. A yeah. thousand miles. That's awesome. Let me little by little. I chipped sure. away at it. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Chipped away at it. Uh-huh. But it was nice to have everything it all wrap up and, you know, on the beach, which was yeah. her, on her birthday. And the only thing that would have been better is if, you know, she was waiting at the finish line. But Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. And, um, you know, after your brothers listen, I had one family where I had all four siblings share their stories. So oh, really, if they have any interest, even though it's called Daughters Without Moms, I'd be happy to have them. So. <laughs> I will let them know. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. Well, thank you so much for having me. And thank yeah. you for just for using this platform to help to help people, you know, like us, because mm-hmm. it makes a difference. It really helps me to know that there's other people out there like me. It's helpful to have this community. Thank you. It helps me too. If you'd like more information on my thoughts about the grief journey, please visit my website, www.yourgriefjourney.com. If you'd be interested in sharing your story on the podcast, please send me an email to daughterswithoutmoms at gmail.com.